We'll bow our heads. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, that your uh, mercies are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together to learn your word. We do pray as we start wrapping up this great ideas about your doctrine of election, Lord, you'd help us to think well upon your biblical text so we may be more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me lay out kind of the plan where I want to go. We left uh, off last week really finishing up the doctrine of total depravity and showing the inability of man. Now, today I'm going to begin by showing you the acrostic tulip. It's an acrostic that Bob and I often adapt. We like the solas of the Reformation better. However, I want you to be aware of what the issues were in the debate between the Remonstrants and the Calvinists. So what I'll do is I'll talk about the five points that they disagreed, and we'll take each point. We've already taken total depravity and showed the inability of man, so we don't have to deal with the T of TULIP, but we'll be dealing with the other ones. And then when I get done with that, we'll talk about compatibilism, the idea of how man's free will and God's sovereignty interact, and we'll talk about that. And I'll show you a weakness in the Arminian position, and then we'll conclude uh, from there, and I'll be end, uh, teaching the book of Joel at some point, and Bob will be getting back to the book of Acts. So that's where we're going to be going. So let's begin by talking about this debate between the remonstrants and the Calvinists. The remonstrants, the, the term itself means a protester. And so these are protesters who lived in Holland in the 1600s, and they were followers of Jacob Arminius, who had perished. I mean, he had died. I don't mean he, he went to hell. <laughs> don't, don't think that I'm claiming he's a heretic in, the, in that sense. But he died. He passed away. So his followers had five points of contentions that they brought up to the church in Holland. So you see in Holland in the days, the Heidelberg Confession was the official position of the church at Holland. So these remonstrants, these protesters, had five points of objection. And let me read them to you. They don't follow, by the way, Tulip, but Tulip does address them. Number one, the Arminians said, God elects on the basis of foreseen faith. Okay, so how does God elect someone? He looks down the corridors of time. He sees who will choose him by faith. Therefore, on that basis, he elects them. So that's often termed the foreknowledge view of election or conditional election. Second, they believe that Christ died for all men. For every man, all the only believers are saved. Okay, now, what that means is they believe in something called unlimited atonement, that Christ did provide atonement for every single person, but it's only applied to those who believe. Now, contrast that with limited atonement, or as I will call it, particular or de uh, definite atonement, where God died, or Jesus Christ died for the specific task of saving his elect. So do you, see, you can see the difference there. <clears throat> third, the Arminians did say in their third point that man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. So they did believe that, yes, there had to be a prevenient grace. Prevenient means first grace that was given. The problem is they believe that that was given to every man. And I think I've shown you good evidence that that's not given to every man. Fourth, they believe that this grace, this prevenient grace, was resistible. Okay, in other words, just because God poured that grace upon people, it could be resisted. Those who acquiesce to it are saved. Those who do not are not saved. Okay, and I'll show you some problems as we proceed through each of these points with that. Number five... Listen to this. This is one where they kind of punted. They said, we're not, we're not sure yet. Now, this is at the time. Now, Arminians today have changed, but this is what they initially said. Whether all who are regenerated will persevere and necessarily remain in the faith needs further investigation. So they weren't sure whether anyone could say that they had eternal security or, as Calvinists call it, the perseverance of the saints. So they needed more time to investigate that. Now, as time has moved forward, those who follow the teachings of Arminius are typically those who say, yes, a Christian can fall from grace, and some actually do, and they will actually perish. Okay, so you can lose your salvation. Now, to that, we had a response by the Calvinists. This is where the tulip comes up. The first T of the tulip is total depravity, Total depravity, remember, does not mean utter depravity. 
Total depravity means that the fall of Adam affected every aspect of who we are. It affects our bodies, it affects our minds. But we laid out for you in great detail that the primary issue with total depravity is one of moral inability. It's not that unbelievers don't know what the gospel is saying as if God, again, is speaking Chinese and we don't understand English, but rather the unregenerate know what God is saying and they don't like it. They are morally opposed to it. So that's the sense of total depravity, that no one is able, because of their depravity, to come to faith in and of themselves. They must be regenerated where they're given a heart transplant is a good way to think about it, where for the first time in their lives they'll see the, the goodness of the gospel, the need for the gospel. So that's the idea of total depravity. So to that again, the Arminians taught human ability. All right now, unconditional election, that's the you, and that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Unconditional election is again God choosing before the foundation of the world, solely based on his good pleasure, those who he, whom he would regenerate, those that he would save. Okay, and again, it's not based on anything that man does. It's not based on God looking down saying, hey, that person is going to believe in me. On that basis, I'm going to select them. It's not based on that. It's solely on God's good pleasure. The reason a person ends up believing is because God chose them. The Arminians have it the other way around. The reason why they're chosen is because they're seen as believing from afar. So completely different, all right? Third one is limited atonement. Now, this is where Bob and I start changing the acrostic around because limited atonement gives us a bad sense as if Jesus Christ's atoning work is somehow deficient, somehow weak. That's not what limited atonement means. So if you're a note-taker, or you just put in your mind, write the term definite atonement. Definite atonement means that the purpose of God in sending his son to die was for the specific purpose of purchasing the elect that were chosen. Meaning that when Christ died and made atonement, he did not fail. How many in here know that when God sets out to do something, he does not fail? His will cannot be thwarted. This is why Paul said in Romans 9.19, who can resist his will? And what's the answer? No one can. So if he sets out to save, he does save. That's the idea of definite atonement. The idea of definite atonement means the atonement was made for the elect, but as we always say, it was sufficient for all, but it is efficient for the elect. So not one person could ever come to God on the last day and say, hey, you didn't really die for me. No, there was sufficient atonement made, but it was made for the particular purpose of the, for the elect. The other thing I'd like to point out is think about it for just a moment. If, in fact, God atoned for every single human being, well, then why would he hold sins against anyone? After all, they have atonement which means the debt has been paid. So think about it for just a moment. At the end of the day, unless you're a universalist, you have to limit the atonement as it's applied. It's how is it limited. So we'll talk more about that. The fourth one in the tulip here is I, irresistible grace. Think about this. Irresistible grace does not mean that there are not human beings out there resisting God's gracious work in this world. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Irresistible grace means that when God pours his effectual call upon the elect, in which he does a heart transplant, taking them from spiritually being dead to spiritual life, he does not fail. And again, that's the kind of will that's being spoken of in Romans 9.19, where Paul says, who can resist his will? And the answer is no one can. The Arminians believe that 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 grace is resistible. Okay, so big difference. If it's resistible, then ultimately salvation is dependent upon whom? It's upon us. It's upon us. So this is where Arminianism, you can see, 
is a man-centered salvific plan. Some people are smart enough, good enough to believe, and others are not. But when you see the doctrine of total depravity, which I think we've laid out, you realize no one can do that. So irresistible grace. Now the final one is the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints means this, that God's elect, those who are purchased by the blood of Christ, God enables them to persevere in the faith so that they shall never perish. It doesn't mean that you have somebody who professes to be a Christian but lives their whole life for the devil that somehow you can claim that they're saved. No, they may have had a profession, but they didn't have possession of true faith. No, those who persevere in the faith are those who are kept by the grace of God. This is also rejected by the Arminians. They believe, again, Christians can fall from grace, that you can lose your salvation. Okay? So with that, let's begin. Now, notice I have the you highlighted red, the unconditional election. I think you and I have exhausted total depravity again. Total depravity means that all human beings are morally incapable of believing the gospel. So let's move on to unconditional election. When the Arminians talk about election, they believe that it's conditional, not unconditional. So this was the point of contention in the 1600s. The Arminians believe that election is based on God's foreknowledge. God foresees who will believe And God, therefore, chooses them on this basis. So again, their conception is he looks down the corridors of time, he sees who will trust in him, and on that basis he chooses them. So the choosing of individuals is based on the goodness of that individual. Okay, so this is where you get the idea of synergism, that salvation is a cooperative effort between man and God, that God doesn't do it alone. Okay, Contrast that with the Calvinist position where election is based solely on God's good pleasure. God sovereignly chooses individuals for salvation based on nothing they will do or believe. The reason they believe is because he chooses to regenerate them. So it's his goodness that causes them to become believers, not them being believers on their own causing his goodness. That's the idea. Okay? So what's the evidence here for unconditional election. Well, first of all, let's lay out what the issue is. The primary text that is being debated between Arminians and Calvinists is Romans 8, 29 through 30, often called the golden chain. Why is it called the golden chain? Because all of the verbs necessarily follow from one another. Romans 8, 29 through 30, notice here Paul said, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now notice the first highlight in blue where it says, for those whom he foreknew. What's very interesting is I want you to see that that's directly connected to this idea of predestination. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What the Arminians do with that is much mischief, in my opinion. They take the foreknowledge and they claim that this is God looking down the corridors of time, seeing who will believe, and on that basis, God is predestining them. The first comment I would make in refuting that idea is that predestination, the very definition, means to set one's destination beforehand. Okay, so if that's the truth, if that's the case, predestination would seem to indicate it's something that's done before anything man does. So what I'm going to show you is that foreknowledge is tied directly not to God looking down the corridor of time, but rather to this idea that God chose before the foundation of the world to love the elect in a unique and intimate way. So if you're a note taker, what I would say is foreknowledge equals foreloving. That God chose before the foundation of the world to go into an intimate relationship with his elect that he does not with the reprobate or the unregenerate. Okay, does that make sense? Now, 
let's start laying out that case here. But before I do that, let me just point out one thing that I love about this text. Notice all the verbs here. Those whom he predestined, aorist, active, indicative, he called, aorist, active, indicative. Those that he called, he justified, aorist, active, indicative. And those that he justified, he also glorified. Aorist is past tense. Active is God is actively doing this. Indicative simply means this is the condition. In other words, it's not a subjunctive, it's not a desire. This is simply what is take, taking place. So the believer can be confident that if you've been predestined, you've also been glorified. In God's eyes, they are all done from eternity past. That's what Bob taught us in Ephesians 1, where we saw that we were chosen in him before what? Before the foundation of the world. But again, what we're going to take issue with is how to understand foreknowledge. Are the Arminians correct? Does it mean that God looks down the corridor of time? Or are the Calvinists correct that it has to do with a foreloving and God's desire to love his elect from all eternity in a way that he does not love the unregenerate? I'll show you it's the latter. So let's begin with some texts in the Old Testament that show us this idea of knowledge oftentimes in Scripture has to do with more than just mere cognitive knowledge. And what I'm going to show you is that these texts, if you think that it just means that God knows something, it really makes no sense because God knows all things. And in these texts, it would be a big duh. Of course God knows. He knows all things. So if he knows his elect, it's like duh. Well, doesn't he know the unelect? Yes, he's omniscient. He knows all things. So the knowledge that he has of his elect is like when a man in the Old Testament knows his wife. Does that mean he sees his wife and says, hey, I know her. That's my wife, Sharon, or whoever it is. No, it means he knows her in an intimate way. In the same way, the verb yada. And by the way, those of you uh, learning Hebrew, you're going to learn that term to know. Yada means to know, but it also means to know in an intimate way. Let me start building the case. I'll do it in a roundabout way here, beginning in Deuteronomy 7, 7. Now here... The context of Deuteronomy 7 was where God commanded Israel not to intermarry with the other nations and they were to destroy all of the seven nations that they were going to dispossess from the promised land. Well, here in Deuteronomy 7, 7, he says, why? Why is Israel to be different? He says, Yahweh, that's all caps, the Lord, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So notice, first of all, God's choosing of Israel was not based on who they were. It wasn't based on their greatness, because they were the fewest. But I also want you to see how this is what's called synonymous parallelism, that setting the love on the Israelites is synonymous with God choosing them. It's synonymous. The term for love here, kashak. Kashak, God loves them. And on that basis, he also what? Bachar, he chooses them. That's the idea of foreknowledge in Romans 8.29. That before the foundation of the world, he decided to set an intimate love upon his people that he doesn't bestow upon the unregenerate. That is is the idea of foreknowledge all the way in Romans 8.29. Yes, Bob. Perhaps a New Testament cross-reference would be helpful, if you don't mind. Well, absolutely. Unless you can already go with this. I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians 1. Perfect. Okay, so if we look at 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 26, <laughs> I think you can see a revelation of God's purpose, for example, why he chose Israel and the Jews. Because notice here, you are the fewest. Okay, so there's this idea that God chooses what the world despises or sees as nothing. So here's our text, 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 26. Brothers, consider your calling. So that's what we're talking about. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, 
God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So now, if... Remember, one of the five solos is to the glory of God alone. Yeah. So the point of choosing what the world hates is for so that no one can boast. Amen. It's clear. And so the last thing anybody should ever do if they are a Christian is boast that God chose me because I had something to offer God. Yeah. He needed my money. He needed my intelligence. He needed my whatever I think I might have. If there's anything to be learned, is probably that we don't have anything going for us. Right. Okay, so right. Uh, there's no point to be boasting, oh, we're the such and so, so we must be God's elect. That's an abuse of the idea. Yes, amen. And so you see that same thing in Deuteronomy 7, 7, as is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thank you, Bob. Great cross-reference. Um, it bring, brings up a story in my mind. I remember years ago I was debating with a friend who was an Arminian, and we were up at her, actually at her cabin, and he said to me, he says, you know, I think the doctrine of election, those who believe that God sovereignly chooses, would be the Calvinist conception. He says, I think it's a very arrogant position. And I said, well, I think it's more arrogant to believe that, as Bob said, that someone boasts in their own goodness. God chose me because he saw that I would do something that was pleasing to him. And it was on that basis that he chose me. Therefore, I have something to boast about. The only way that we have nothing to boast about is a from first to last, it's all from God. That's what the scriptures are teaching. Dear ones, that's why this matters. At the end of the day, if we believe, as Bob just talked about, in one of the solas of the Reformation, that all of this is for the glory of God alone, and he shares it with no one else. Yes, we will participate because of what he's done in the glories to come, but he doesn't share his glory. It all belongs to him. That's only possible, yes, Peter, if in fact the Calvinist conception, I think, of election is true. Yeah. So the Arminians and maybe non-believers would say, well, that's not fair. And then secondly, what you and Bob are saying, he chose the losers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Big picture. That's right. He, he took, yeah, Bob, do you want to respond? Well, I was, Brian brought this up before Sunday school and was asking me about this. I mentioned the other day mental acts. Yeah. The interesting thing about this is the people who object to election are usually Christians. Yes. And the reason they object is that they're looking at things from the eyes of somebody who knows Christ and looking at people that don't and thinking it's not fair. But the people who actually don't serve Christ don't want to, and they don't think it's unfair. Right. Okay? So we're only talking about what's in our mind, not what's in God's purpose. And so if you look back, if you were saved as an adult and you can have a memory of your conversion, not everybody does. That's not essential for salvation, by the way. Some people can't identify a day or a point. Uh, but if, if you were somebody like Saul of Tarsus and converted, the last thing the person wanted before the fact was to be like the Christians. Yeah. Because they despise the Christians. And look at Saul of Tarsus. He despised the Christians. He wanted them dead. And suddenly he is one of them. So don't think from a human perspective, it doesn't seem fair because we only think that way because we actually believe. Yeah. And the people that don't believe think we're nuts for even thinking that any of these things are true. Right. Remember, with the unregenerate, Peter, who don't love the gospel, they are morally opposed to it. 
They know what God is saying. They don't like it. So that, to me, goes a long ways in answering the fairness issue. The gospel is there. And what's more, even if they don't have the gospel, according to Romans 1.20, what may even be known about the creator from the creation is sufficient to make them culpable. But even what they know from creation, as Paul lays out in the rest of Romans 1, they turn from that understanding and they worship and serve the creation, excuse, yeah, the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. So, yeah, so that to me really always answers the fairness question. Yeah. So, um, Bob, Beck, so it's Christians that really struggle with this fairness doctrine more than. Yeah, actually, uh, in my experience, atheists and panentheists, and, or there are people who call themselves Christian, but they think that they don't believe the atonement, atonement or the blood atonement or heaven or hell or anything. It's looking back at the facts. So I brought an email that I, 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 I have all these emails I get from people that are rebuking me for believing what Paul said in Romans 8. And uh, here's just a response I found on my computer for one of these uh, the reason, I wrote back to a person who asked this question. The reason for all the various theories that have been proposed, in my opinion, is that we do not accept that we do not know everything God knows. We do not know who will believe the gospel. God knows. We do not. If we're going to prejudge and think that only Jews would be good candidates, we'd be wrong. If we thought that only people who seemed nice to be nice people compared to others would be good candidates, we'd be wrong. If we only thought people from some countries, not others, we would be wrong. All people literally are people who may believe. Okay? So we have to have a theology grounded in what God has revealed that we can know to be true, and not a theology based on human emotion, human sensibilities, human wisdom, or what we imagine we know that we can't really know anyhow. And I went on to say to the guy, the Lamb's Book of Life is not published. (laughs) I like that. Okay, you don't have a Mueller report, (laughs) you know, uh, talking about contemporary debate in politics. here, Here it is. Here's what happened. We don't have that. And so we have to be willing to function with what we do know and be content with what we don't know. And it's a wonderful thing. I love that as a preacher because I don't know who is going to be saved. So I preach to everybody the universal call. Let God sort it out, but don't base your theology on what you wish you know, but you can't know anyhow. Amen. Well said. Thank you, Bob. Eric, just one. Can I just yeah. have one follow-up? So then, to try to synthesize this, then Armenian Christians are redefining Christianity in human terms. I believe so. Absolutely, that's right. And again, that's why we started, and we spent so much time on the T of Tulip with total depravity. Once you understand that it is impossible for a human being to do what the Armenians are claiming human beings are doing, choosing Christ. Once you lay out they cannot do that, the only question that should come to mind, well, then how is anyone saved? The same question the disciples asked Jesus. How, when he says it's as impossible to, for a man, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, well, then they ask, well, then who can be saved? Well, with man, it's impossible with God it's possible. So yeah, that's the whole issue of total depravity. If you don't get total depravity, if you don't get that, the rest of the tulip, as it were, the ulip doesn't make sense. So I hope that's a sufficient answer. But but let me move on here. Let me keep showing you how this foreknowledge in Romans 8.29 is certainly God for loving and again, choosing to bestow a unique love upon his elect before the foundation of the world. Here in Amos, where he was one of the prophets, to Israel, calling them to repentance, and he's explaining why. Why should he call them to repentance? Why is he going to judge them and judge them because they broke his covenant? Well, he explains, he says, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Notice I have an asterisk by the chosen. Does everyone see that on the screen? 
and on your paper. The reason that's there is the term chosen in Hebrew is yadah. It means to know. So literally, it's you only have I known. Let that sink in. He says of Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Stop there. This is a conundrum for the Armenian. Because if we just take known in its simple sense, does that mean God doesn't know all things? He only knows the Israelites. Can you imagine that? He doesn't know all of the other nations. He doesn't know of all the other peoples. God really isn't omniscient. But wait a minute. That's certainly not what he means by you only have I known. And this is why the NESB actually does not just translation, but they do a little bit of interpretation in their translation. They're trying to help the English reader out, saying, yeah, it doesn't mean just that you only have I known. It means you only have I chosen. That's what it means. You only do I know in an intimate way, as a man may know a lot of women in his life, but he only knows intimately his wife. Of course, that's the ideal. Okay? So, Amos 3, 2, you only have I chosen. Let me give you this analogy, and I hope this analogy doesn't cloudy the waters. I hope it makes it more clear. Do you remember in the Old Testament, most of you in here have heard of the Shekinah glory, right? That glory comes from the verb in Hebrew, Shekinah, it means to dwell. It's the dwelling presence of God. So what's very interesting is we know when you unpack all of Scripture that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Remember David cries out, he says, if I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I go down and make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where can I flee from your presence? The answer to that rhetorical question is nowhere. Why? Because God is everywhere. So when God's Shekinah glory dwelt with the Israelites, it did not mean that he was not present because he's omnipresent with the Philistines. So how do you reconcile that? Wait, God is omnipresent, and yet his Shekinah glory, this dwelling presence in the form of a theophany dwells with Israel. Why? To show that they uniquely had a relationship with him a saving relationship. In the same way, you have been dwelt by the Holy Spirit. One time I was talking uh, and teaching Sunday school right here, and my talking about being indwelt by the Spirit led a parishioner to ask the question, where does he enter? The Spirit, spatially. And what I try to explain to them, it's, yes, God is omnipresent, but the idea of being indwelt by the Spirit isn't a spatial issue so much is as it is a relational exactly. issue. Okay, so for example, Bob's going to be teaching us when we get to Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. And I think we as Christians have the idea, well, I'm a court low. Spatially, I'm a court low. I got to look, 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 put another court in me. But the idea behind that statement is that we have to acquiesce to the Spirit. Why? Because we're no longer slaves to sin. That's the idea. Okay, yeah, Bob. Yeah, in a perfect terminology. I was going to just, I hope this is helpful, look at the Amos 3, 2, and many other yeah. places where the word no is used in a relational sense. So I, would, I just stated this in my notes here. Therefore, no is relational and not merely cognitive. Exactly. So what's we're calling Arminian, based on Arminius, uh, is confusing the, the cognitive and the relational. Yeah. Okay? And God foreknows who will choose him is God's cognitive knowledge in their, their scheme of thinking, and they're ignoring the relational aspect of it. Great okay. category distinction. And yes. so foreknowledge, and we saw this <clears throat> in Ephesians 1, means have a relationship in advance. Amen. Okay. This, God sees people as his who have not yet come to know him. Amen. Okay. So we've got to get the terms right. And in the end, 
all of these five solos work together because this is scripture alone. Yeah. It's Christ alone. And, and Rome, it's Ephesians 1, which we went through, that barakal or eulogetos uh, in the Greek, the benediction or the Blessing. praising God, it says three times yeah. to the praise of his glory. Amen. So God tells us why he told us that he foreknew us. To the praise of his glory. Amen. Not that we had something to offer to God that he couldn't have done without. Yes. God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are. And so we can't boast. We just know for a fact we had nothing going for us. Amen. And so all glory goes to God. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, that's a great. So let's think about Bob's distinction. The Arminians are saying foreknowledge in Romans 8.21 is merely cognitive. God knows the future. Well, of course he knows the future. That's a duh. But what Bob is saying is the Calvinist conception is a relational one. That's exactly right. That's what the data in the Old and the New Testament suggest. And I'll further lay some more evidence out for you here. Um, in fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 4.1. Let's begin there. Genesis 4.1, I'm going to show you that this idea of knowledge, meaning a relational one rather than just cognitive, is all over the Bible. Let's begin with Genesis 4.1. So here's Adam. In Genesis 4.1, it says, Now the man, so remember, a man is Adam in Hebrew, so that's, that's Adam, had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So obviously there's an intimate relationship causing the birth of children. Isn't it interesting where it says the man had relations with his wife, which leads to the children. The term there for relations is yada. So some versions will say now the man knew his wife. Now again, that doesn't mean just cognitive knowledge. That's a relational knowledge that he knew his wife in an intimate way. That's precisely how we saw Yadah used in Amos 3.2, that God had an intimate knowledge of Israel, the elect, that he did not have with the rest of the nations. Okay? And again, we see this time and time again through the scriptures. Turn ahead. We're still on the law. Let's go to Numbers 31.18. Numbers 31.18. Numbers 31.18. Now here, God is marking out what was salvageable after the conquering for the Israelites and what else should be put to death. Numbers 31.18. God says, But all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. Now notice the not known there. That's Yadah, the negation of that. So, that again, the, and I love the fact that they put it in here in the English translation, not known a man intimately. That's the idea behind yada, oftentimes. Sometimes it just means no, cognitive knowledge. The context tells you which. Is it relational knowledge or is it cognitive? Here, Numbers 31, 18, it must mean relational. Okay, let's turn to another one, and then I'll put up one on the screen here. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 34, 20. This is what... God said about Moses. Deuteronomy 34.20. If you turn your Bibles there. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. So notice the intimate knowledge, the intimate relationship that God had with Moses. It was unique, wasn't it? Moses alone was the lawgiver of the Old Covenant. Moses alone went up on high and met with the Lord in the cloud of glory. We're not finding that verse. Oh, did I give you the wrong one? 3410. I'm sorry, I've got a typo in my thing. Sorry about that. No wonder Nancy was, you look confused, Nancy, in that. It was me, Uh, 3410. 3410, okay. Sorry about that. Does everyone see that now? Okay, sorry about that. My typing, I guess, isn't the best always. Okay, let me put up here on the screen, Exodus thirty-three, twelve. Then Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, 
bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me <clears throat> have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So again, here's a passage where God knows Moses in an intimate way. It's not just cognitive knowledge. God knows every single human being on the planet, whoever will be, whoever has been, whoever is. He knows them all. He knows every hair on the head. He knows everyone. He is omniscient, knows all things exhaustively. There is nothing that he does not know. And so certainly the idea that I've known you by name, it's not significant that God cognitively knows Moses, but it is that he relationally does. That's what's significant. Now, let me show you the evidence as we go into the New Testament. Now, this one, in my opinion, is particularly devastating. Um, In fact, if we could have a reader, could someone read the context of 1 Peter 1? And we'll begin in verses 17, and we'll read through 19. Again, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. If we could read that. I have the mic. Oh, good, Christy, thank you. <laughs> 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one. Am I on the right one? Yes. Peter 1. Okay, I'm sorry. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Okay, stop there. Everyone take note of the last word she decided. Christ. Christ. That's the way it is in the Greek text. It's Christu. It's the genitive form, Christ. Okay, now why am I showing you that? We want to be good readers of the next verse. 1 Peter 1.20, everyone look on the screen. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. So who was foreknown? Christ. Now, does that mean that God simply had a cognitive knowledge of who his son was? Of course not. It means that he had an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship, an intimate love with his son before the foundation of the world. That is precisely how foreknowledge is being used in Romans 8.29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. It's not that just God had knowledge of some people cognitively and not others. He knows all things. It'd be a big whoop. He knows some people. Well, that's great. That's not what it says. The idea is that he had a saving, loving, intimate relationship with some. That's the idea. Again, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Okay. So obviously, this means that Christ was for love. He was foreknown in that way. So if you're a note taker again, in Romans 8.29, that's how I like to think of when it says, for those whom he foreknew, I like to think of those whom he foreloved, those whom he had a unique loving relationship with. That's how it should be understood, not just cognitive, but relational. Let me show you another one. Romans 11.2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, I'm being quite deliberate here in Romans 11:2 by linking now the idea of foreknowledge of God's son Israel and the knowing of his son Jesus. Just as God in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Peter 1:20 knew his son Jesus in an intimate way, had a relationship with him before the foundation of the world, in the same way He has the same relationship with his people. In fact, notice the underline. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's it's not that he knew all people in a loving way or had foreknowledge of all people. It's specific to his people. Does everyone see that? 
Okay, if someone wouldn't mind reading Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Let me show you a further correlation between Israel and Jesus. Someone turn to Exodus 4.22. Norm, would you mind reading that one? Exodus, oh, I'm sorry. Um, someone's got it over there? Oh, great, Brian. Thank you. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Wow. So Israel is whom? He's the firstborn son. Now remember from messages past that Bob and I have given, what does it mean to be the firstborn? It means you have the inheritance rights. That's exactly right. So Israel, of all of the nations, was God's firstborn, meaning not that they were the first nation ever on the scene of history. No one could argue that. But certainly they had his what? His inheritance rights. They were his firstborn son in that they had a unique relationship with God. God had a unique relationship with them. So they're in Egypt, and what do the Egyptians do to God's firstborn? They mistreat them. So what does God send upon Egypt but a bunch of plagues? And what is the last plague that comes upon Egypt? The smiting of the... God says, you mistreat my firstborn. I'm taking out your firstborn. And there's a reversal. And God takes his people, his firstborn, to himself so that through the exodus he can bring them into the promised land. Why? Because they have the inheritance rights. But they stumble, don't they? They fail miserably. Yes, Bob. If you look at that Romans eleven two a, God has not rejected His people, whom He foreknow, for for knew. You have to go back. If you want to really think about the implications, they have to go back to Genesis twelve with Abraham or Abram. Yes. Everything that led to Israel being a people was initiated by God alone. Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees. There's nothing in Genesis 12 that's saying Abraham was trying to figure out how to be the head of a people. Right. How, how a nation would come that would be different from the people he was already with. But Yahweh literally appeared to Abram and called him out of there to a different place. Yes. And then, as you've taught here recently, in the initiation of the blood covenant that God makes, yes. the animals are cut in two. Abram doesn't walk through, but God, Yahweh, does Amen. in a theophany. Right. So it's a unilateral covenant made by Yahweh. So the establishment of a people whom God foreknew is done by God's gracious choosing in the person of Abram and the people that would be his descendants, and not all his descendants. Yes. Because look at the narrative, Jacob and Esau, yeah. and just read on down. That's right. And then the birth of Moses, this amazing story. So what I don't get is how most of evangelical Christianity throws all this out the window and says, God's looking around at who's going to do something for him. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, and then... Doing that, saying God knows we're going to choose him, so there's something in us. Uh, they may not call it meritorious, but then they wonder why they have all this stuff going on. Yes. Why do we have purpose driven? Right. Why, why do we have Enneagram? Why do we have you know, church growth movement? Yeah. Why do we have Joel Osteen? Why do they have the prosperity gospel? Because we do something. Because there's something that's. Uh, innate in that thinking that gives glory to man and it's just begging for Americans to create some new process to create Christians yes. out of what we do in our ingenuity and attracting people by making God look more attractive whereas if God gets all the glory and we had nothing to offer to God 
and that God is gracious to sinners who have nothing going for them. Yes. And God knew us when we didn't even want to know him and came into our lives by through the gospel. Then you have no reason to follow after all those winds of doctrine yeah. that are so attractive. Right. And that's the fatal flaw. Right. Bob so well said, this is what it's all about. What Bob's describing is the Calvinist view upholds God's mercy. The Arminian view destroys God's mercy. What is mercy? God's unmerited what? Favor. Yeah, right. Or grace. We can, remember grace? Grace and mercy are really two sides of the same coin. Cassette. So grace is where we get what God, we get something that we don't deserve. Mercy is where we get what we do. We don't get what we do deserve, Right. But just think about it. What the Arminians are saying is that people deserve his mercy. They deserve his grace by something that they have done. But isn't mercy and grace undeserved? Not in the Arminian conception. God looks down the corridor of time. On the basis of your choice, he bestows mercy and grace. That's not the Calvinist conception. Yes, Levine. Um I'm just thinking of... To continue with you and what you and um, Bob have been saying on, on Judgment Day, I think it's in Matthew, where um, they say, well, well, I did this and I did that, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I, I never, never knew, you. knew you, meaning they had no personal relationship, they didn't know Christ as their Savior. Great reading, of own goodness. Very good point. LaVon, you get, yeah, free coffee, <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. Exactly right. So right there, that I never knew you, it's not that Jesus doesn't cognitively know who they are. He knows every single human being. He's omniscient. He has all the attributes of deity. Why? Because he's God. So he's talking about the intimate relational love. Absolutely. Great, great point. Yes. Um, by the way, back to this Abraham calling too. Do you remember in Genesis 11, all of the nations gathered together by works. And what did they build? They built Babylon. And remember, what was the purpose? They were going to make for themselves a great name. Genesis 12, God selects some nobody out of nowhere, and he says, I'm going to make your name great. God does a reversal, and he starts over with a new humanity. Humanity builds Babylon, we see in the book of Revelation, by their works, by what humans do. God brings the new Jerusalem, all by his grace and what he does alone. That's why, to me, this is the pinnacle of all of theology. At the end of the day, who saves? Is it God or is it man plus God? If it's God alone, as Bob was just saying, he gets all the glory. So one thing I was going to... Oh, I'm sorry, Dan. I I was just going to say a great example of Arminianism in uh, Catholicism would be how they they look at the Virgin Mary and her being, you know, the sinless, yes. sinless person that was chosen, that, that did enough good things in order to be chosen by God. And where it says in uh, Luke, uh, let's see, Luke, it's Gabriel's announcement here. In, in, it says here, uh, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Well, she was favored in the fact that she was she was chosen, just not because of anything she did, but the Lord chose her. Um, yeah. And and the Catholicism gets that all wrong. They, they that, yeah. that's why they they exalt her so much is because she's somehow has earned her way to become the yes. mother of God, as as they call her. Um, and so Dan, I just, well said. Uh, and they end up taking incommunicable attributes that belong to Christ to God alone. And then they ascribe them to her. For example, pray to Mary. Well, how can Mary hear all those people unless she's omnipresent or omniscient? They call her a co-redemptress, where we have one redemption made from one atonement who was crucified once and for all, the just on behalf of the unjust. So they take what Christ did alone, they give some of it to Mary, and then they ascribe the incommunicable attributes of God that belong to God alone, and they ascribe them to Mary. It's nothing short of blasphemy, ascribing the divine attributes that belong to God alone to a mere mortal. It's evil, it's blasphemy, and it's just false religion is what it is. Well said. Thank you. So here's the connection I want you to see between Exodus 4.22 
where you have the son who was foreknown, who had the inheritance rights, that's Israel, but they failed in the wilderness. But Jesus, do you remember what happens at his baptism? You see, he went through the wilderness right after that, but he succeeded where Israel failed. And you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did the Father say? This is Matthew 17, 5. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus is the faithful Son Israel never was. But I want you to see that connection between both were foreknown, both had a saving or loving relationship, as it were, with God before the foundation of the world. Okay, let me um, move on to John 1, 11 through uh, 13. And I think I can finish up these two verses uh, before we leave. Here I want you to see in John 1, 11 through 13 the idea of unconditional election. And I want you to see in this text whose will is responsible for salvation. Is it the will of man that God sees down the corridor of time that's willing to choose him? Or is it simply the will of God based on nothing that we do? Well, notice in John 1, 11 through 13, it says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, does everyone see this idea of who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh? What kind of being born is being referred to there? Is it a physical birth or is it a spiritual birth? It's a spiritual birth, isn't it? The same being born again or born from above that Jesus describes later in John 3. That no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born from above. Okay, so that being born, notice it's not of... I'm sorry, Peter, you got something? Finish your thought there. What I want you to see here is that will, notice the term will, thelema, it's not of the flesh nor of the will of man. So this salvation cannot stem from man. It's not what the man wills. Why? Because of total depravity. The will of man is in bondage. The will of man is morally opposed to the things of God. So notice in blue, whose will is it that salvation is dependent upon of God? That's the answer. Yes, Peter. So um, received could imply works. Are the qualifiers there than the latter verses? Yeah, so notice here, though, Peter, let's just qualify it. Here's where we see something synonymous. Received is synonymous with believe. So in other words, believing and receiving are the same thing. It's like in John 6 where Jesus talks about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Well, in John 6, 29, he makes it very clear what he's talking about. What is it that you must do to do the, the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent? So he's using the eating and the drinking as a metaphor for true belief. In the same way, the reception is often used, by the way, in antiquity for table fellowship. So if you receive someone, what you're asserting is you are my people, your family. You belong in my home. Uh, it's that sort of idea. But belief is synonymous with that. And again, that belief is something that is given to us according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, by the power of God. Yep, so they're synonymous, receiving and believing. Yes, I'm sorry, we'll get Ryan and then we'll get Brian. Well, thinking like too, it. kind of about being born, none of us had a choice about when we were born or where we would be born. And that yes. kind of ties into John 3 as well, where he's talking about being born of the Spirit, you must be born again and the wind blowing where it wishes. Well said. We had nothing to do with the work our parents did to be born once into this world. We certainly have nothing to do with being born again. Absolutely. Great analogy. Thank you, Ryan. Yes, Brian. I just wanted to throw one more verse out there as far yeah. as the word uh, known goes, and that's we all know the one, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But right after that, verse 7 is, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. Yes. Yeah, amen. Well said. Yeah, thank you. That's a great passage to leave on. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom, you got something. Whoops, I'm sorry. We'll get you on... Uh, 
So anything you say can and will be held against you. <laughs> the his own, who does that refer to? Um, right here, he came to his own, yes. but his own did not receive him. That would be Israel. Israel, yeah, um, Israel. So that's one of the problems that you see in both John and Matthew, that he comes to his own, that is the Israelites, those who had the covenants, those who had the adoptions, those who had the law, those who had the promises, and yet they wouldn't receive them by and large. But as many who did receive him, meaning the elect, whether Jew or Gentile, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So his, so his own there in context has to be Israel. So his own does not mean elect. Exactly. Chosen Israel. Good question, Tom. Yes, right. So if we're being good readers, we know that his own here has to be the nation of Israel. Uh, and remember, even the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Jesus came first to the Jews. By and large, they rejected him. Okay, but as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord that are receiving and believing in you is only by your grace, your mercy, nothing we did. You deserve all the glory. We pray that you would implant that deep in our souls all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.